you know, I, I went for the David Bowie look by 83, 84. Um, so, and I was, I was pretty, you know, they would let me in at 15. I could go hang out in, in a bar. It was 21 in, in Portland, but it was such a lawless town to grow up in. It was, you know, it was very sketchy and, um, exciting. It was a very exciting place to be, to be young and new wave. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we, we drew, drew the map. map. Welcome. It's uh, nine o'clock in the evening here, just outside Bordeaux in France, which means it must be about midday where you are, lol, in LA, California, which means it must be about the same time midday. Are you guys in uh, Portland? Yeah. I've got Courtney Taylor Taylor, and I've got Peter Holmstrom from Dandy Warhols. Hey. Do you do the kind of definite, like Dandy Warhol, or as David Bowie would say, Warhol? <laughs> Did you ever see the mime that w when David met Andy, um, David had thought it would be a good idea to put on a whole mime routine for oh, really? Andy. Right. Yeah. I, I yeah. only heard the horror story about it. I never actually saw it. Did you, uh, did you actually see it? When either of you actually see it? I saw, I saw a, I saw a movie recently called in fact about a couple of days ago called stardust that had that particular encounter portrayed <laughs> in it and um it looked very very super embarrassing yeah <laughs> i was told that that's what got david off to on the wrong foot with andy and it right, never right never actually came, came back around which is really strange you know david probably the single most fabulous you know musical artist of our day i think in another in another life, I was invited onto a radio show, Jonathan Ross, in 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 London, and it was with Susie, and it was a uh, we were talking about something we'd just done, and Jonathan had got a live link up to uh, New York and uh, Mr. David Bowie, and um, <laughs> and it, it was like David came on and went, "Hi, Susie, hi, Budgie," and I just was like, I just froze, I froze on a mic. <laughs> <laughs> like, why because you're nervous or like i think yeah for you guys had a different david than we had in america you know he was he was really elvis over there well yeah that was like yeah. i was just starstruck i think I, or maybe it was just mm -hmm. just because uh, i might say the wrong thing oh god yeah there's that <sighs> always that it's always a joy to think about think about for the rest of your life <laughs> what you said, yeah, I love that. Oh yeah, you can play it back and go. I know what I should have said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, always a good one too. Yeah, I have a I have a David Bowie story which I've probably told before on on here. Um, my erstwhile uh, partner Robert um, got a phone call one night, and he he never gets phone calls, you know, because well, you know, he keeps his number kind of private, and um, got his phone call one night. 
and it's, at, the, at the other end, it was a, hi, this is David Robert. How, how are you? I'm doing a 50th birthday uh, celebration in New York, and I wonder if you'd like to come along and sing. And Bob thought, yeah, this is somebody having a joke with me. This is somebody that, uh, you know, this is just a... So he, he promptly uttered an expletive and uh, put the phone down. <laughs> Ten minutes later, the phone rings again, and and he goes, uh, "Hey, Robert, no, actually, it really is me, and I got your number from you know uh, Chris Parry and blah, 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 and uh, we'd really like to." And and Robert was like, "Oh my god, I'm kind of melting. I just told David Bowie to fuck off, you know." So, <laughs> but they did it. They did it anyway. They did the show, and it was great. And Robert loved it, and and Bowie loved it. I think so. You know. Well, Robert, Robert told me about that. We sat up all night in a Greek hotel. That sounds very familiar to me, sitting up all night in some hotel with Bob. Yes. Yeah, under the under the sky in their terrace, drinking Greek white wine until the sun yeah. came up. It was, we were in yeah. horrible shape. But he um, he said that, he said, you know, Courtney, I did this thing that all English singers do in our era. We all start to get famous and then we then we we go straight for david bowie i'm greater than bowie i have more hits than bowie i'm you know, bad mouth bowie and i and i was doing that and 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 thinking god that's so stupid why am i doing that and then i got this call from him right saying saying you know and he didn't tell me that there was two phone calls he just said he got a call from bowie saying hey and i said yes absolutely david i'm so sorry yes yes sorry about everything i ever heard of I was, I was, I was just lying. I was, you know, yes, please, please, can I? Yeah. Right. You know, Robert was, Robert was, um, kind of the only one of my heroes that ever gave me any help or any advice. David never did. Strummer never did. You know, Stipe never did. All these, all these guys that I, I was fortunate enough to, um, be interesting to them. Our band was very interesting. All these cats. And uh, right. I, being the singer, kind of uh, got got a good chunk of their time. Robert was great. He really was. He was really the best of all the. So, all so the... what piece of advice did he give you? I'm interested to know that. Um. Well, it was just sort of a, that arc where we were getting world famous. We were becoming one of those, and it hadn't happened right. yet. And he said, and he he said now. You've got to be very, very careful about who you let in. Your world is about to change. It was this kind of thing. And remember, we've been drinking quite a lot for hours, actually, without food and uh, in the middle of the night. So um, after a festival. And so it's blurry, but he said uh, something happened and we hadn't got toured for quite a while. Then we put out... Um, I can't remember what it was after your big break, but the singles had come out and put you guys at the top of the world. That that staring at the sea, um, yeah. that had come out, and in America, yeah, you couldn't walk into a bar and sit for even twenty minutes without the Cure off of that record coming on, or that right. whole record coming on. It was it was right. phenomenal, and it was great because music pretty much sucked in America in bars at the time. So at least there was that. And then Elvis Costello also released a greatest hit. So there are two records that are getting played a lot, but Staring at the Sea was an absolute turning point for your band in America. 
and um, and so, but he, I don't know that he had really, I remember thinking, did he not even understand that that did it? But then you came out with a disintegration uh, on the right. heels of that, I believe. That was how that happened. And he said, we released disintegration, we went on tour, and it was the most depressing time of an already depressed life. Yeah. I would walk on stage. We, were, we weren't playing theaters to our fans anymore. We were playing to stadiums. And the first several hundred people, there would be hundreds of white baseball caps and not even on frontwards. And that was, that was his, <laughs> his <laughs> angle. Yeah. I, I, left, I, I left just bef before that tour, so I, I, I didn't get to experience that one. Um, the other bit I wanted to ask you about was, did, did Robert have his cassette box with him in, when you were talking late at night? What's a cassette box? No, well, he always he always carried around on tour for years and years and years a, a box containing all these cassettes that he liked. You know? I, th I, th <laughs> oh I think he stole that box off our tour bus because the banshees yeah. travel around with. Like, I used to, I've got them all still blue blue boxes of cassettes that we'd compile. Yes, yes, a blue one. That's it. Yeah, he, he nicked it. Yes, he, nicked he had a blue it. one. I think he nicked it off Severin. Yeah, that does that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh. In this box, it had all his favorite songs from you know the past, and after you know a bottle of Retsina or whatever it was that you were drinking Greek wise, that that stuff would have come out. Trust me. So you you would have you would have right. seen it. We, we this was I'm I'm talking probably 2003. Yeah. No, there were no uh, cassettes in by 2003. So. Maybe he kept it in his bunk on the tour bus by then and yeah. didn't show anyone. I've only had that experience once. We we opened for David Bowie again. That, that David's back in again uh, on his um, Glass Spider tour. So we were out at the oh, Universal okay. Amphitheater. Somewhere out in L.A., huge place, and the Banshees went on. I think it must have been about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Whilst all, And I've got some photographs that somebody sent me recently. And everybody in, not just the front row, but the whole audience really, all had the, they had no baseball caps on. They were all mostly in pink and white. And and they were smiling and they were suntanned. And they looked like they had no idea, certainly no idea who we were. They might have had probably little idea who David Bowie was. But they were at the gig. Um, and we were just, I think, really you know so like amped up to be playing such a huge place but we were playing to people showing people to their seats you know with a big kind of marching yeah. flag mm -hmm. not the, mm -hmm. the best place to play in the midday I've had worse playing in <laughs> Germany to a, to a bunch of um, death metal fans that was a mistake oh, wow was goth lumped in to well, uh, in, Christian in, death and things like that. Yes, so. all that stuff. It was we were touring as the creatures, and somehow the promoter had got us mixed up yeah. with somebody else, probably. And oh, so dear. again, wow. early in, in the afternoon, we went on, and the audience looked at us and went, "Nah, we don't like this." And they turned their backs on us. It was it, oh. it was 
you know, doesn't get much. You got worse. away. You got away easy. Yeah. How polite. How absolutely <laughs> polite. <of> them. <laughs> then I thank them. Then I take back everything and I say thank you, uh, <laughs> Southern Germany. It's a very nice. No, it was a good feeling. We were okay. Hey, um, Courtney, you, you mentioned uh, Joe Strummer, and Joe Strummer had a birthday on Monday, but he would have had if Joe was still around with us. Yeah. 70, right? He Would he have been 70 on Monday? Yeah. Yeah. Holy, was it Sunday? 20, 21st of August, me and Joe shared yeah. a birthday. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. There you go. That well, was lovely. Happy belated. Well, yeah, but you're you. considerably younger than Joe, so that's that's good. Only just, good. Only and just. you're and you're not dead either. I hope not. Yeah. I hope not. Um, no, not yet. I, I I toured with the Clash when I was with the Slits, and I had a little drum kit that I just done the Slits first album with. And Topper on the first gig came up to me. I was setting my drums on the floor, you know, on the dance floor in front of the stage, because like. The, Clash gear was already up there. And he sat with me all through Sajik and showed me how to like put the bottom heads back on the toms and stuff like that. Cause I thought, you know, concert toms were like no bottom heads. And I just watched right. him every night for the whole of that tour. They were doing the, um, there's a tour supporting the album, Give Him Enough Rope. I think it was called a Sort It Out tour. And I yeah. watched, I could sit side stage and watch like a master at work every night. And it was like, um, just, just an amazing experience, and Joe as well. You know, it was yeah. they were like you've seen a band at the peak. Um, they were f- filming a film uh, called Rude Boy at the time. Yeah, that was my introduction to uh, going downtown, hanging out, going to indie movie theaters, coffee shops. That was when I first cut my hair, started wearing my mom's blouses and my dad's army pants and army boots, wearing makeup earrings the whole bit and that was my single first going downtown uh experience was just go see rude boy and it was way over my head but man it it got me you know it was like this is really cool and this band is very very cool so what what year was that would you say i mean you know in i've been to portland a few times and it's you know pretty funky now and stuff and that but what was it like back then um, it was a post sort of hippie burnout, depressed economy, um, people leaving like crazy, lots of squatters. Yeah. And so there was this, there was this kind of new punk, new wave, young people scene coming on a little bit. And it was, it was blended with the old bikers that were making jewelry and, um, you know, it was just anything goes. Like, if I wanted to hear cool music, I had to go hang out at, at the queer bar. So I kind of grew up in the, in the gay scene in Portland uh, because that's where the girls with Louise Brooks hairstyles would hang out. <laughs> that's where you could hear The Fall or The Stranglers or The Cure or, you know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was, um, it, about the city. The, the city, city club. the city nightclub or Hobos, which was, 
also it was, was more an adult. That was a little bit before my time. Yeah, Hobo, Hobo's wasn't a dance club. It was just a, a gay bar that okay. had a bunch of pool tables and Hobo's. played the coolest music and had kind of the coolest scene. But they would also, because I looked like, you know, I, I went for the David Bowie look by 83, 84. Um, so, and I was, I was pretty, you know, they would let me in at 15. I could go hang out yeah. in, in a bar. It was 21 in, in Portland, but it was such a wow. lawless town to grow up in. It was, you know, it was very sketchy and, um, exciting. It was a very exciting place to be, to be young and new wave. <laughs> It sounds like you're describing, you could be describing what, where we came from in, in a, a kind of economically depressed, no, no future England, yeah. where the yeah. only places we could safely go out to were the gay bars or the strip joints where the Sex Pistols played in Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't the, the old, yeah. you know, the new cabin club, it was the strip joint down the street because the Pistols were not allowed right. to play anywhere normal. Um, oh. Right. Strip clubs were definitely a, a hangout where you could meet other musicians and put your right. bands together. I, I actually paid my way through college being the janitor at a strip club. <laughs> wow. Whenever I'm asked about my personal style, you know, those silly kind of yeah. magazines and things that ask you to describe your personal style. I always like to say strip club janitor. That's how I describe it. You know, can you describe your your describe your personal style in three words? Yeah, uh, strip club janitor. Uh, I'm just writing, I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> it's a good one. Now, Budgie, you always had. You know, I was a drummer my whole life during those years looking like David Bowie, but playing the drums. So I, you know, I, I noticed you as a drummer and I, you know, I'm a symphonic percussionist, you know, classically trained musician, music college, the whole bit, um, jazz lab, Afro-Cuban beats, the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed on Spellbound, uh, the first, that was the first Susan Banshee's track I ever heard. And when it, uh, okay before the in the after the course before the first where he goes and i was like oh that's a that's a drummer that's that guy's a real drummer that's really cool and then i saw what he looked like and i was like oh he looks cool he's got great a great look great hair style is amazing <laughs> and so um and then uh jump forward to probably the greatest feet of um studio drum trickery in until still to this day i believe is uh obviously you know the uh what's it called peekaboo peekaboo what can you please run th through the short version of what that is there's some backwards drums there's some you know you were a marching band style drummer i mean you did what I did in marching band, you know, a lot. So oh, wow. what, what was that? What was backwards? There was, were you on a Sinclavier? Could you turn things around back then? Um, uh, you know, it's that's exactly that, that peekaboo came from a, a, it was a cassette and, uh, it was from it. We had on the, on the cassette was written, um, Derringer reversal, the Derringer right. being a gun, a gun and it was in reverse. Well, we put it on backwards. 
what it was was we were doing reverse vocals on the album before Peep Show, which was um, Through the Looking Glass, and we were covering uh, John Cale's yeah. Gun. And on Gun, let's see, let me get this correct. So the, the brass part you hear on... Yeah. Is the brass cool. section we got in for Gun. And, of course, the drums are on. They're going... Yeah, all that stuff. So we always had that cassette and we didn't know how to use it. And we certainly didn't. We tried it as a band. We didn't work. It sounded just like rock. And then we tried it. We eventually did it in the studio during Peep Show. And it was not really as a kind of a B-side. Um, and I put my drums in in a little concrete room, which was designed to send the signal out as a reverb chamber. And it was the loudest I've ever heard a kit. And I just did this kind of, I was really into LL Cool J at the time and, and run DMC. Yeah. And I wanted to play this. And it was just that. That little break. It sounded phenomenal in that room and it never sounded as good again. It's absolutely stunning. And to this day, it is definitely, I think, puts you in, um, you know, in a world that that you're completely alone as the most stylish drummer in history. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely Courtney. he is. Courtney, please. <laughs> you are the David, what David Bowie is to frontmen, you are to drummers. You should have been in a band with him. You know? I put I owe it all to Chopper. <laughs> no, I owe it to I owe it to all the drummers whose drum seat I took over. It's Palm Olive in the slits. Who was a friend before I joined them? Right, and who was a girlfriend no. of Joe Strummer? Right, 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 right. It's all bloody incestuous. It's a small world I entered into. When I saw a clip of Dandy Warhols performing. It was on Top of the Pops. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Peter, were you on that sh- that show? Yeah. You had a great haircut. He's got the tiniest little suit on, and he, he had changed his moves down to only what fits to this. I couldn't move my arms. It was awesome. It was so cool. I was, I was like, Peter. I, I watched it back, and I was like, Peter, wow. you're And, and, and Zia was left and right keyboard, standing facing the front. Yeah. yeah, she got that from a band called Big Elf that opened for us, that we love. That performance was killer. It was just, you know, right. when you know you arrive, it might, you might be shooting a video, you might be on a stage, and you go, I know this is the moment. Did you feel that then? Mm, did you? I, I, I thought it was good, but, I mean, you have to remember, I mean, we obviously know Top of the Pops, but we don't know what it means. Like, we never grew up watching it. And, and so we knew it was like, that's a goal. We want to do that. But, you know, but by like the effect that it has, no, uh-uh. no idea. Yeah. It was just another excuse to look real cool and be cool. And we, we didn't play live. We had to, we were one of the first bands, we were one of the first bands that had the lip sync. So I went in the studio with a rough mix of Bohemian Like You uh, and without that had no vocals it was just a very early rough mix of it that was real dirty and crappy sounding and so i i just you know forced dave sardi max emi 
Was that a Sardia? Oh, yeah, okay, that's great. That's the first version. Okay, so I forced EMI to give me one hour in a studio or some, somewhere. And I went in and I just did laid the vocals out in one take. And, um, and that was it. So it sounded live. It totally came across as live. That's precisely what it is. Some people just can, can do it. Some people, like Susie, got really good at lip syncing. But it was just, it wasn't that you were lip syncing. Mm -hmm. It was just the look, the hair, Peter as well, the moves you were doing. They, if they were like limited by the suit or the space you had, there was something about it. So mod. Oh, God, so mod. But also, yeah. like, so Wilco Johnson feel good. Or, but the shapes yeah. were great. Yeah. It was so cool. I, and I, it's not like I've studied it, but I saw it today and I thought, that's it. That's why that song's still there. Not just because of that performance, but there was something about you at that time that seemed like you, the story you just told. You went to a studio, got EMI to pay for this. I'm going to get this right. It was like you were getting everything stacked in the right place. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. And we were allowed to, as as time went on, and like Robert Smith had, had said, you know, they're going to start pulling at you. They're going to you know, they're gonna cordon you off from people. They're gonna cordon you off from anything that doesn't serve them, the machine, and they're gonna say no to you a lot. And they're not gonna, you know, it's gonna be more take and less give by your record labels, your promoters, your blah, 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 you know, and and, and, it, and it gets real lonely. And sure. uh, yeah, that was, that was right before we got big. So right. when they, you know, they were, flexible it wasn't a big deal nothing was a big deal so if i asked for something i generally got it if it wasn't expensive was that which which album was that then was that a, th a third album or was it later than that yeah yeah third, third album 13 third album. second second major label record yeah was the big pressure on you to kind of follow it up and how did you respond to that well so by the time we were on top of the pops, we had already like all the songs were written for the next record and we had actually started recording already. So the pressure kind of hit the next record. Yeah. And that one produced, we used to be friends. So we, you know, and the previous record to 13 tales had produced boys better. Every day should be a holiday. Not if you're the last junkie on earth. So yeah. we had a string of, hits we had a string of top 40 hits but not top 10 and not probably even top 20 but just that 21 to 39 we produced probably in our 10 or 11 years on emi records we probably produced a dozen yeah. hits that fell into the 21 to number 21 to 39 and then um you know bohemian likey which went to number two in england and one on the continent of europe so it, it 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 was a cool and artsy run we had, you know, where we got to meet. We were kind of ushered into this level of um, that was also artsy. It wasn't just rock. We weren't just another rock band. We were we were regarded as as artists. You know, yeah. our videos were cool, and our, our our personal styles were all very unique and different from each other. And um, you know, we were just kind of free spirits. Here's a question about um, something that you know I'm sure people don't often understand about bands and that the fact that you had that 
large period of of pretty substantial hits, right? Has that sustained you into you know the new millennium and and like for the last you know, gosh, how many years? You know, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, they think, oh, well, you have one hit and that's gonna you know keep you there forever, and then they're surprised when you know they don't see you for twenty years and that. Do you think that that sort of has made the bedrock of of your uh, you know career uh, we, extending? We, we, for example, we just played Worthing and sold about a thousand tickets, somewhere around a thousand tickets. So that's, you know, that is, it's not a lot. I mean, it's certainly not like the Cure headlining festivals all over the world, but um, that is stunning to have a 28 year later. You can go to a place that no one's heard of in England, right? You know, and play and and sell around a thousand tickets. I mean, that is. Yeah. That's I've great. heard of it only because I was born near there, but um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we can sell out the Olympia in Paris. We can right. sell out the Roundhouse, and sometimes we can sell out the um, Brixton Academy. What is it that's kept you together? Frequent separations and acute loss of hearing. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I listened to quite a few little interviews with you, both actually. But Courtney, right. the, the word comes up most is cool, 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 cool. And and you mentioned people like our our friends uh, Kevin Haskins and Love and Rockets. And I was I was oh, kind yeah. of piece, yeah. trying to piece it together. They were around about nineteen eighty nine or something. But then you went back to like the Clash or the Damned were very early on for you as well. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was really, when I was really little, um, that word became an epiphany for me when I, I had heard, uh, you know, the radio, when you're a very little kid, like four years old, three years old, it's just a thing that the grownups put on and it's noise. And yeah. then I heard killer queen at about mm-hmm. four years old. And then, and it, I was shocked and I, I remember exactly what the room looked like a lot of adults standing around talking holding tinkling ice in a glass with the colored liquid and chit-chatting and this came on and nobody flinched i was blown away what are you crazy and i went over to the stereo and put my head next to it and just listened to the whole thing and then something that didn't matter came on after it well, I became a very good child around bedtime at that point because I would go, okay, I'm just going to bed, mom. Go in my room, close the door and turn out the light and sneak over to the radio in my room and turn it on and turn that dial and just look for this piece of music, see if I could find it. What I found next uh, was Radar Love. Wow. And, and I had a big brother. So the word cool was around. Right, I'd heard the word cool, but it was just a nothing, and that's when I put it together. These two songs, this must be what it feels like to be cool. That's the guiding light for me, absolutely. It's just the something about those two. I mean, they're cool, they're so flagrantly <laughs> cool, they're still unbelievably cool. You had to know. You knew, and that's what was kind of instinctive, I think. You, you had this really strong idea. It wasn't just the music or the 
chord progression or the look. It was cool. Yeah. When you were talking about the radio, that's my first memory ever. I mean, that just blew my mind. My first memory ever is listening to the radio in the kitchen with my mother and my grandmother. And my mother was telling my grandmother, oh, he sings all the songs on the radio. And I was that's my first memory. I was like three or four. And um, I distinctly remember it was Gene Pitney, 24 Hours from Tulsa. And that song scared the crap out of me because I didn't, couldn't understand why he was only 24 hours from Tulsa, but he could never go home again. You know, at four years 24 old... 24 hours from that, Tulsa. Peter, Corny, what favourite lyric? Lyrics that like like that that might have tugged at you, that jump out. Oh, just on the spot like that, huh? Oh, yeah, I can tell you... Uh, uh, the something something the 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 days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. Wow. That lyric, I just got I just got goosebumps up and down my arms and back of my neck. That's Larry Norman. That lyric is the spooky lyric of my childhood. <laughs> the freaky scared the hell out of me. Yeah, lyric. <laughs> what about you, Pete? I'm was more of a music person, less of a lyric person. Um, yeah, I we came from the rock knucklehead generation of lyrics. So uh, Pete right. and I noticed that when we when we became friends, that we both really didn't listen to lyrics. Right. Just ignored them as as long as possible because once you heard them, you couldn't unhear them. Yeah. Well, I had the opposite. I had the opposite feeling, you know, because lyrics and words were always super important to me, you know, and from day one with The Cure, you know, that, that was my focus. I mean, you know, I was drumming, but I was also writing lyrics, and mm. that was really what motivated me out there to something to express myself, you know. Fantastic. Um, really, it's, it's been just great, great talking to you. It's been really lovely sharing a lot of uh, memories and as well as uh, key moments. Um, wishing you really all the best for this uh, for the next thing, onwards and upwards, as we say. Yeah, been lovely to get to know you guys as well. The three words I had for you guys: honesty, integrity, and trust. Wow. wow. Okay. Thank you. That's incredibly <laughs> flattering. And, and, and my three words are very cool, guys. Thank you. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.